On this season, we're not going to be doing long intros anymore. Hopefully at this point you know what this project is about and all of the disclaimers therein. Regardless, you can check out the trailer for Season 3 if you want to hear more rationale for what this season is about. On today's episode, we have Dr. Pierce joining us. Dr. Pierce is a renowned Old Testament scholar. He has taught at a theological seminary for many years. He has a lot of thoughts about gender and the theology of gender um, and what that all means for Christians who are following Jesus. He actually teaches a class that was once called Theology of Gender and is now called Gendered in Christ. And so really, he has had a lot of thoughts and a lot of time to process and think through what should we as Christians be thinking about these topics and issues. So let's dive on in. Hey guys, welcome back uh, to part two of this conversation with Dr. Pierce. Um, In part one, we talked about kind of a theology of gender. What does the Bible talk about gender? What does the Bible talk about manhood and womanhood? Um, we got into intersex and transgender conversations. Um, and this part of the, the conversation, we really want to focus on gender roles, maybe specifically within the church and the family. Um, and so we're going to do that. So, Dr. Pierce, um, thank you for being here, even though we just <laughs> we just talked about five seconds ago. Um, it's going to seem like it was a four-day gap for everyone else, but for <laughs> us it was about five seconds. Um, but yeah, uh, let's talk about gender and the church and the home. Because this is normally when people think about, oh, a podcast on gender and Christianity, it's probably about the complementarian, egalitarian debate. Um, so now we're going to actually maybe talk about that a little bit. So maybe could you just kind of define what are the two maybe predominant views right now in American Christianity? Um, and we can get into then beyond that, the spectrum of how people hold these beliefs. Yeah. And so complementarian, egalitarian has become the terminology since the late 1980s. Uh, and the complementarian terminology, you still can't find it in a standard dictionary. It's that new, uh, but it was- Yeah, my, my phone's never, like whenever I try to like mention it and I'm talking to a friend or something, it never, it always spell checks it and it makes right. me so mad. <laughs> and do you mean complementary? Yeah, exactly. A compliment or something. And yeah. so, so no, it's a complementarian uh, was coined by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood in 1987 um, uh, in order to describe a hybrid view on what used to be the patriarchy versus egalitarian debate. Uh, and so in patriarchy, the men should be leader, uh, the male, man should be a leader, and the man's a leader because God has gifted ways in men, gifted men with, uh, in certain ways that the men make better leaders than women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then the women should not be leaders for that reason as well. They mm-hmm. should be more the submissive ones. Uh, what happened in the so-called now complementarian movement started in the 1950s with, with George Knight and then became most famous under Wayne Grudem and John Piper in the Council mm-hmm. on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, they said, no, 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 we're completely equal, men and women, yeah. in status, but we're different in function. So now mm-hmm. the gender roles stays mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. function, but never in status. Mm-hmm. And so that hybrid view is now what is called complementarianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, egalitarianism has been around since the Reformation, really, mm-hmm. uh, and simply saying that um, leadership roles in the church and home should be determined on the basis of godliness, giftedness, education, experience, but not on gender. Mm-hmm. That, that gender is not that we should share, men and women should share, mutually share leadership in the home and the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, that's that's the real difference, I think, between complementarianism, egalitarianism. Mm-hmm. Complementarians and egalitarians agree on the status equality, but disagree on the functional equality. Yeah, and so before maybe in the ni- before 1950s or around the 1950s, you had maybe more of a 
a status issue um, with women. It was more seen as women can be more easily deceived. Um, mm-hmm. And it, there's something flawed within them, maybe. Compared to now, it's more of, no, there's nothing wrong. Um, we are totally equal. It's just we have been assigned different roles to carry out until Jesus returns. Um, exactly. And that's kind of the modern era where complementarians would say, we are assigned different roles until Jesus comes, um, but we're totally equal. We're totally loved by God. There's nothing better about one gender or the other. Both are valuable. Both are needed. One just is more given the role of leader, and one is given more the role of, uh, let me put this in a good way, like nurturer, uh, home home submissive kind of. They're just more submissive. They're the support um, in a very dignified way, a, a dignified support. Um, and the egalitarian stance is more, yeah, amen to all that, except women can also lead. Um, and that's kind of the distinction. This really plays out in the church, in the family. Um, most complementarians today wouldn't necessarily say, other than Piper and Grudem, would say that you can't, like a woman can't be a CEO, although some would carry this kind of leadership to, to most. Let's maybe focus on just family and church mm-hmm. um, today. And so we have these two views. One view says um, women can lead and be elders and pastors in churches and can be part of the leadership team in a, in a home. Um, and the other group says, no, they can't, but we love them just as much and they're just as equal. And so maybe let's let's describe a little bit of the practice of these two. Um, how do these functionally look different? Let's start in the church. How does this functionally look, look different um, within like a church setting? And how could someone, if they're listening to this, how would they know? Because I know there's a lot of people probably listening to this. This is the first time they've really heard this maybe in depth. Um, and so they probably don't even know maybe what their church is per se. Um, and so how does this kind of look functionally maybe in a church setting? Sure. And, and the, the variance in the way it looks really only comes in a complementarian view. Yeah. For egalitarians, we serve together mutually on spiritual gifts and, and other. But with a complementarian view, there's a wide range of diversity within the complementarian camp mm-hmm. as to what women should or should not be allowed to do in the church. I think Wayne Grudem wrote an article uh, about a decade ago in which he listed about 20 to 30 different possible places to draw the line mm-hmm. between whether a woman should or should not do a certain thing. And complementarians generally don't agree about it. With the moderate complementarians, it usually boils down to two things. Well, one thing, teaching with authority, mm-hmm. or two mm-hmm. things, teaching or leading. Mm-hmm. And they don't mm-hmm. even agree on that, which mm-hmm. it is, or maybe some would say it's both. Um, and so that's the difference. Mm-hmm. Then the question is, of course, what does it look like for me to teach with authority? Mm-hmm. Can I preach but not teach, mm-hmm. uh, which is Wayne mm-hmm. Grudem's position? Mm-hmm. Uh, and can I be on the elder board but not chair the elder board? Mm-hmm. So all this fine nuancing uh, just hasn't settled. It is, so the mm-hmm. complementarian view is really changing rather mm-hmm. rapidly. And it's, I, I think it is actually becoming softer and softer to yeah. where it may actually disappear by way of importance or lack of importance. Mm-hmm. That, that as a younger person grows up and they can't tell the difference between an egalitarian couple and a complementarian couple. Mm-hmm. And they say, I guess it just doesn't matter. Yeah. And then yeah. I think what we're going to, the evangelical church is going to have to face that choice, especially those who advocate for distinct gender roles. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be nice to have one less argument for the church to fight over. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> but, I mean, things matter. Um, so if you're listening to this, uh, a way to maybe know what your church's stance is, uh, first, if they have, like, a theological statement, um, but that might take a while to read it. I know a lot of people don't like reading. So just go to your your church's website and see who the pastors and elders. Um, 
And if all of your pastor elders are specifically men, um, unless it's a pastors of women's um, or children's, then you're probably in a complementarian church if it's just men. Um, but if your website has women pastors who are not just pastors over kids or pastors uh, over other women, but are pastors over men or other like thing that men are in, then you're probably in an egalitarian church. Um, now, what that looks like, and Dr. Pierce is mentioning this, is that that can look very different in complementarian churches. So the church I currently uh, serve at and work at right now is a complementarian church, but the women can preach on Sundays. Um, it's not very often, but it, it does happen. Um, women can lead Bible studies. Women can teach. It's just they can't be an elder, which is what how the church would describe it. It's specifically reserved for men um, because it's a specific office of authority teaching where they're in control of the doctrine of the church. Everyone can teach the doctrine of the church. They're kind of just in control. They're safeguarding it, um, and that's only reserved for men. So that's kind of how my church um plays it out, although I disagree <laughs> with it because I land maybe a little bit more in the egalitarian camp. Um, but that's one expression. Another expression is maybe women are only leading maybe children's ministries or other women's ministries. And that's maybe a little bit more of a harder, not that it's like completely hard complementarian, but a little bit more of a moderate complementarianism um, where it's not necessarily women can teach from the pulpit on a Sunday. And so all that is to say, um, we're not going to dive probably specifically into the theology of it because there's enough podcasts and enough books. Dr. Pierce is a part of this huge book <laughs> um, that talks about the issue that I've read. It's about 400 pages, uh, but you can just read his sections. Uh, I'm just kidding. There's a lot of good sections. Um, so there's a lot of stuff about that, but maybe let's talk specifically about just function and what this looks like. If someone wants to get in the arguments, they can. Um, and I know this is going to come out a little bit in how we're describing it. Um, but let's talk about what maybe what this looks like in the family. How is this different um, than maybe how it's displayed in the church? What does the family order look like for complementarians and egalitarians? Yeah, it's usually described in terms of uh, giving spiritual direction to a family, making final decisions for the family if a husband and wife can't agree, um, even being more responsible, the husband being more responsible for the wife with regard to her sanctification, then she mm -hmm. might be responsible for him, mm -hmm. which I think getting the F-O-R preposition in there is problematic. Mm -hmm. We should be responsible for ourselves, responsible to each other. Mm -hmm. be mm -hmm. more, but, but in a, a complementarian camp, uh, the husband bears greater responsibility. And there's a variety of other nuanced things like that. Yeah. That's the way it usually looks in a complementarian marriage. Yeah, which is funny because normally complementarian marriages, they'll say... I have final, the, the husband, they'll say, I have final say when we can't make our minds up. We're both pitted in our views. At the end of the day, the woman submits and I make the final decision. Um, that's kind of when it will come out. Um, but the funny thing is if you talk to most complimentary husbands, it's like, well, how many times has that happened? Uh, once <laughs> or zero times. So, I mean, not here to argue for one position or the other, um, although me and Dr. Pierce both agree on the egalitarian position. Um, but philosophically, it seems like what Dr. Pierce was saying functionally with churches and specifically in the home, it's looking more and more like the exact same thing, no matter what viewpoint you hold. Both like families are not one is the leader, although one may take the title of leader. They are not necessarily leading like that. It's they're always coming to a joint decision. It's always mutual. It's always equal. Um, and so for me, it's kind of it's irrelevant who's the leader then when it doesn't actually play out. Um, but maybe we can dive into a little bit of the idea Paul uses the word the head um, in Ephesians 5 and, and turn, talking about husbands and wives and how they should operate. So maybe we can camp out on this one a little bit. I know this is theology um, a little bit, 
Um, but what does this look like in the family? Um, when Paul when Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, um, the male is the head of the woman, um, and the woman is basically supposed to submit to the head of the family. What, what do you think that actually means, and how should that play out in the lives of marriages? Obviously, without getting into an extensive exegesis and you know all of the different passages that relate to this, but maybe what is one just a little practical way? How does this play out in both camps? Sure. Uh, well, I think was it's important for us to be careful, even in the way you just described it, where the man is the head, the woman should submit. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Paul's language, he does say the man is the head, but it's a simple present tense descriptive. Mm-hmm. He's the head. Of course he was. Uh, was he at the authority? Yeah, he was authority. But what's he called them to do? He calls the husband to sacrificially love and the woman to submit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he prefaces all that, of course, with the language of mutual submission. Uh, and then he also uses this head-body metaphor. So it's not mm-hmm. just head by itself, head-body, to talk about not just Christ's authority over worldly powers, which are not his body, but six times in those two letters, Ephesians, Colossians, he talks about headship, Christ head of the body, being a source of life and provision. Hmm. And so he's calling Greco-Roman husbands, I believe, in that context to say, because they have this position of power in the culture, they should not rule over the woman. They should, in fact, or instead, uh, it's really counterintuitive, they should sacrifice their life for the sake of their mm-hmm. wives. Mm-hmm. So that they put, put that in the home then in very practical ways. Uh, are husbands called by God? Uh, George Knight calls it a biblical mandate. Mm-hmm. Are they mandated by God to show leadership, make final decisions, be the sanctifying uh, one responsible for their wives? No, the Bible never calls them to do any of that. Mm-hmm. What the Bible calls them to do is love sacrificially, mm-hmm. which comes, of course, off of the play uh, play of the statement, submit yourselves to one another. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, you're, you're right in describing complementarian marriages. The vast majority of them, and some really strong complementarians fall into this category, look very egalitarian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. I don't think it's <laughs> yeah. good they're being inconsistent. Yeah, they're not being consistent maybe with their <clears throat> belief system, but yeah. But it's a good, they're living yeah. the way Christ has called husbands to live, sacrificially mm-hmm. serving one another in love, yeah. which is also a statement that, that Paul applies to both sides, yeah. to serve one another. Something I've pondered a lot in this discussion, because I, I think the, the two camps can be unhelpful, because it kind of, it's like a Republican or Democrat, um, where there's so much diversity in each of those camps, and there's so much different understandings of what those mean, and so much different practice then of how you live it out. Um, so I think sometimes it can be very unhelpful. But for me, one of the biggest things in looking at Scripture is that regardless of egalitarian or complementarian, there does seem to be this mutual submission. Um, it seems like we have taken modern concepts of leadership and headship and force it on to the text, um, where when Paul talks about headship, he's saying, yeah, he's the male is the head which is a very Greco-Roman idea, um, even maybe a Hebrew idea. But he then describes headship, what it should look like in the Christian world. Um, That's this sacrificial love. Um, And so I think if you can go to the Scripture and not say, well, I'm the head, so that means I'm the head decision maker, the Scripture doesn't say that. Now, maybe you can infer that because of what headship might mean. But when Paul describes headship, he describes it as this mutual love sacrificially rather than this kind of authority and power. And I think we often take, well, since the Bible says the male is the head, and since the Bible says the male is the leader, um, since those are true, let's take the modern conceptions of leadership and headship 
and say that's how we now live it out. When I'd say, well, let the text define what the text is defining. When it calls the man the leader or calls him the head, well, what is it? What is Paul saying by that? What does he mean by that? And he describes it for you. Mm-hmm. And then when you dive into 1 Corinthians 7, um, which is one of my favorite passages on sex. So if you're looking to study sex at all from after this podcast, other than Song of Solomon, 1 Corinthians 7 is a good passage um, where Paul talks about in the marriage kind of bedroom, um, there's this mutual laying down where they don't count their bodies their own but give it to the other. Um and it's this beautiful idea that if even in the most intimate of places, there's this mutual self-giving love where they don't consider their own interests but the interests of the other, then maybe that can be carried a little bit out to the other things where it's not about who's making the decisions, but how can I uplift the other? How can I give myself for the other? How can I sacrifice for the other? How can I submit for the other? Um, it seems to be Paul's, even if you want to land complementarian, he seems to be reordering what headship means reordering what leadership means um, where he's saying be a leader like christ what did christ do he served <laughs> he sacrificed um and so it seems to be this we took the leadership we said we like that and we're like for the commentarians and we said well how they display leadership and headship maybe we don't like that as much let's take the modern concept and bring it in so within all of that um again because we're not going to dive too far into theology just because that's a can of worms <laughs> and there's so many passages that you need to go through with genesis and timothy and different things but maybe we can just kind of give some precursors of where do you think complementarians go wrong philosophically and how it's practiced? Like what are the most dangerous aspects of maybe believing this and taking it the wrong way? Because obviously if you take them the right way, hopefully it's, it's good, holy, and loving. And then on the flip side, what are maybe the really wrong ways egalitarians can take mm-hmm. their belief mm-hmm. system? Um, so where are, the, where are the two, how can the two camps go wrong um, when they're not maybe adhering to the, sure. the biblical mandate to love well? Yeah, and I, I think the first place we go wrong, one of the first places, is that we ignore 1 Corinthians 7. <laughs> because not only does it yeah. talk about this this radical sense of mutual submission in the marriage bed, which even complementarians pretty much agree on now. That's mm-hmm. an exception to their rule. Uh, but there's 11 other statements about mutuality in that one chapter, including statements about marriage and divorce and singleness. Yeah. All of this, fidelity, faithfulness, which was huge in that day. Um, and, and so, Paul, that, that passage just does not fit in a Greco-Roman culture. Mm-mm. It sounds completely egalitarian yeah. in a modern sense. So, But that being said, let, let's talk about the excesses on both sides. Yeah. I think the, 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 probably the most serious and fundamental excess on a complementarian side is to say um, the Bible is prescribing male leadership or authority. Mm-hmm. That opens a door, even though they, they immediately put the caveat in, but 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 not in an abusive sense or not mm-hmm. in a domineering sense. It opens a door to abuse and domination. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Steve Tracy, uh, a professor from Phoenix Seminary, has made some powerful statements regarding that. That and he's complementarian, mm-hmm. but as a complementarian, he said complementarians are more responsible for addressing issues of domestic abuse than egalitarians because we open a door to it. Hmm. Uh, hmm. And that that's radical to hear him say that. Yeah. But, and he took some flack for saying it that day. <laughs> I, I, I recall <laughs> that at a national meeting. On an egalitarian side, I think the greatest, and this is one of the reasons I don't like the word egalitarian. Mm-hmm. I think one of the greatest problems with it, it implies a complete equality with no difference. Hmm. So we lose complementarity. Yeah. So I very much believe in complementarity. I don't believe in complementarianism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But complementarity, we bring beneficial differences. Now, I don't know for sure if they are 
differences that are from the way we were born, hardwired, or whether they came with nature, and how much they've been affected by our sin. Yeah. I think those three things really mix it up that make it really hard to determine. But the fact is, we bring beneficial differences to each other, and I am 100% in favor of that. I just don't want to rigidly stereotype those, as we yeah. talked about in the yeah. previous podcast. Uh, so in that context, I think egalitarians sometimes go wrong when they begin fighting back against differences. Hmm. Or egalitarianism sometimes gets branded feminism, mm -hmm. Piper and Grudem's books where feminism mm -hmm. is constantly being used in their titles, uh, in the sense that I am all about women's rights, therefore I'm pushing toward more of a matriarchal society. Men yeah. have gotten it wrong, now we women can fix it all. Yeah. Uh, and I think, frankly, that's equally as wrong. Yeah. So I'm feminist in the sense that women should at least come up to a level of equality in our thinking, mm -hmm. not be held down as inferior. But I'm not a feminist in the sense that I want women in charge instead of men in charge. I want us to learn to give up being in charge yeah. and to become servant leaders together as a team. Yeah. 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 Well, it seems like with egalitarianism, the, the way it goes wrong, and I think why for a lot of complementarians they haven't seriously considered it is because of the radical kind of maybe feminist agenda or radical liberal agenda, whatever you want to call it. Um, where they've tried to erase all differences between the genders, um, which we've already talked about, isn't necessarily biblical. Um, there's nothing wrong with complementarity. There's nothing wrong with diversity. Um, scripture actually honors diversity and encourages it um, and says it's good. Each has his own gift, um, and each has been given a gift. And so sometimes egalitarians can go wrong by saying, well, there's no difference between the genders. We're all the same. And it's like, well, that's, to me, maybe it's not this radical, but it sounds kind of like saying I don't see color. Um where everyone's the same, there's only one race, the human race. Um, it, it sounds like we don't need to shy away from differences to promote equality. Like equality can exist with differences and equality can exist with complementary. Um, but I think that's often where they go wrong. Um, and I think we even talked about how, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but we both agreed that maybe a woman shouldn't be a head pastor, but that neither should a man, <laughs> where it should always be sure. a shared leadership. Um, and so we're not advocating for matriarchy. Um, to fix patriarchy, but we're advocating for equality, um, where in all churches, they're led by a plurality of leaders, men and women. Um, and in the household, you see that perfectly, because normally most households are led by a plurality of leaders in a husband and a wife um, in this mutually shared leadership. But then on the complementarian side, I think one of the biggest areas I can see it going wrong in the healthier versions because um, obviously in the unhealthy versions, patriarchy, <laughs> all the abuses uh, of men to women. Um, but I think where it can really go wrong is that I think if you are a complementarian church and you are an all-male leadership, then you better, like, you better be really good at listening. Um, because if you don't listen to women's perspectives, if you don't hear their advice and perspective on leadership decisions, mm -hmm. you are missing 50% of the church. Um, and you're missing 50% of perspective on how to love the church. When we want to know how to love men, we often go to older men or to men in that group to figure out how to love them well. Um, and so when oftentimes when it's male leadership, a lot of churches can fall into just this echo chamber of male to male kind of advice and perspective, which doesn't mean it has to be wrong. But I think if you're not listening and not reaching out to the female deacons or female leaders in your churches, even if they're not head elders, I think you're missing a voice of 50% of your population. And many of us today don't realize that the idea of complementarity with regard to gender first came in among egalitarians, yeah. not complementarians. <laughs> and the yeah. idea was because women bring a different voice, 
Therefore, we need women on the elder yeah. board and in leadership roles yeah. because we need to hear those complementary voices. Whereas now, complementarianism has taken complementarity and used it more as a way to divide as mm-hmm. as, as opposed to uniting. Yeah, it's funny that the the exact argument that a lot of times I feel complementarians use of like. Well, we're different, so that means there's different roles. Um, and I'm like, well, we're different, so that means we need both <laughs> in leadership because we we're gonna miss we're gonna miss being able to minister to half of the world if we're only relying on male perspectives. And again, commentaries can live that in a healthy way. They can really encourage. Um, I know Southlands, a, a church in the area, um, they have elder meetings every week, but every other week the wives of the elders come in um, and are just as much involved um, in the process, where they offer perspective, they offer wisdom, they offer counsel. I mean, I think that's a way I'm not sure if it's consistent with complementarianism, um, although it kind of fits the Aquila Priscilla kind of dynamic. So I'm not sure if it's consistent philosophically and theologically. But in terms of culturally, that sounds like a really good way uh, of living it out. We're actually honoring women's perspectives um, and giving them a place at the table, even if they're not allowed to officially be heading the table um, or orchestrating the table. They're still allowed to have insight and voice into the table, which I think is helpful. In that sense, complementarianism is a a transitional movement toward egalitarianism. (laughs) And so it it brought us away from the rigid patriarchy of the 1950s. Yeah. And it is slowly bringing us toward more of an egalitarian model. Uh, Yeah. Which is funny because a lot of complementarians, and again, we're not here to harp on complementarians even though we land on the other camp, but we do think the modern complementarianism, a lot of them are just egalitarians without giving the title to it um, or the name to it. But a lot of complementarians will say, well, no, the reason I'm complementarian is because for church history, it's always been complementarian. And I'm like, okay, I do see complementarianism throughout church history. Um, I also do see egalitarianism, uh, egalitarianism in the early church um, until about 400 AD when Constantine took over. And then we see it again in the Reformation. Um, but I would say that your complementarianism of today is not what has been in a lot of church history. Um, so to argue that it's always been a church history, I think it's true in some regard. But in other regards, I'm like, how you're living it out today is inconsistent with how some other complementarians lived out in church history. And so that's normally where where my kind of fight with complementarians comes. It's like, well, just be consistent. Um, if you're going to give the system, be consistent. And if you're going to claim we're the literal reading of Scripture— then be the literal reading of Scripture. And I think in Second Timothy or First Timothy is the perfect passage um, where, where Paul basically says, I do not permit a woman to speak um, or exercise authority over a man. So if you're going to take that passage literally, then a woman cannot speak in church. I think in Corinthians he also says that, um, in First Corinthians 11 or 14. 14. Uh, yeah, yeah, 14. He says, I do not permit a woman to speak uh, in church. They must remain silent. So if you're going to take it literally— then you're when you're singing worship and stuff and you're talking, I should only hear male voices. <laughs> like it should be a, a bass, it should be a boom. Um, so you're not taking it literally, and that's okay. We agree with that. It just is the question is not who's taking it literally or not, but what steps are we taking, um, maybe culturally and redefining the text or reinterpreting the text in a healthy way. Um, and so that's that's I think a lot of where my problems arise um, is where. You're not the literal reading, um, and if you are, that's okay, because I think Wayne Grudem and John Piper, for the most part, are, and John MacArthur are pretty literal reading of the text, and that's fine. They're consistent, um, but to kind of just wave the banner, and me and Dr. Peach were talking about this, it's whoever can wave the banner of we're the literal inspir- inspiration and errantist reading of Scripture, whoever can wave that banner first wins, and the commentarians waved it first, and now egalitarians, a lot of them have said, well, they waved that banner, so we're going to go wave like a love banner 
or a cultural banner. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Pierce and I are here to say, no, like we're waving the banner just as much of like, yes, the authority of scripture, the inspiration of scripture. Um, it's just a different interpretation. Yeah. Students sometimes come to my door and say, I, I heard you're an egalitarian. And I say, yes, I am. And they go, why? <laughs> you know, and I, which is, I want to invite them in for a cup of tea first. <laughs> but, but, he's, but sometimes if I can, if they want like a one minute answer, I say I'm egalitarian because of the authority of scripture. Yeah. Because I was raised as a traditionalist, a patriarchal mm-hmm. uh, model and a patriarchal model. Uh, I became a complementarian before the complementarian name was invented. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I changed my mind because I was driven by Scripture. Mm-hmm. So I was already in a complementarian school at that time. I was in a complementarian church. Mm-hmm. And so for me to change my mind created all kinds of problems socially yeah. with me. Yeah. Uh, but I only did that because I felt compelled by Scripture. Yeah. So it really is the opposite with me. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I can't stay with my old tradition. I'm compelled to move because I've been reading the Scripture. Yeah. And, ma- and maybe that's where a lot of egalitarians have gone wrong, where they haven't diligently studied the Scriptures or sought after wise counsel on these things and have just said, no, culturally this sounds better, I'm going to do it. And so that is, I think, for those egalitarians, it's like, well, go— Go get there through the text. Go get there through the Holy Spirit. Go get there through wisdom and counsel. Um, and so that's that's really where I think you're almost giving egalitarians like Dr. Pierce a bad name <laughs> because he got there through the authority of Scripture, through the inspiration of Scripture, and through working through the text, not just because he wanted to give into culture. Um, and so I think that's where egalitarians, to point another part of where they go wrong, is often where they get there by non-biblical means um, or non-Holy Spirit-driven means, but more of just a a desire to to bend to culture, which is normally the complementarian complaint against egalitarians. And it does happen in evangelical egalitarian cult- oh, churches yeah. mm-hmm. where a person say, I know what Paul said, but I think he he got it wrong on that yeah. one. I've actually yeah. heard those words yeah. from an evangelical uh, Bible professor. I think Paul might have got it wrong on that one. And, and I have a, because of my commitment to inerrancy and authority of Scripture, I have a real, real problem with that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I think in part it's because we misunderstand how he was using it yeah. in the context. Yeah. And we don't apply it in the same literal way today. Mm-hmm. And people say, oh, you're not bowing to the, or you're not submitting to the authority yeah. of Scripture. Yeah. So I guess a question for you, Dr. Pierce, because I'm sure you've had this conversation a lot, um, is kind of how, how do we, as people listening who are complementarians and egalitarians, or who just have now listened to the podcast and realize, oh, yeah, I'm a complementarian, I didn't know it this whole time, or oh, I'm an egalitarian, I didn't know it this whole time. How do we go about having conversations about this? Um, and how do you see the future of the church working these two out together? Because I think, again, just like with gender, uh, in terms of like transgender, um, gender rights and different things, this is one of the like other hot button issues where this is splitting a lot of churches. Um, I know, like, for my own story, I have now uh, served as a, quote-unquote, director or leader of a church as complementarian. Um, so I've I've pastored without the, right, like, the title of pastor in a church, and I'm uh, accepting a job at another church uh, that's a complementarian as well, and I'm egalitarian. Um, but I'm fine working the system as long as it's healthy, loving. Um, I don't want to stay there forever. <laughs> I eventually want to move to something that's more consistent with my theological beliefs. But how do we how do we work this out, um, and how do we have conversations about this without just getting mad um, and calling the other unbiblical or unchristian? Yeah, I, I think just civil decency and, and respect <laughs> for one another is a great place to start. Yeah. Uh, but we can, in a in a passion to defend our view, 
we tend to misrepresent the other view just a little bit, mm-hmm. just enough so it doesn't sound as good, uh, although we're still technically accurate. It's like telling the truth, but not all the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're still technically accurate, but we're misrepresenting it. And, and at the end of the day, we end up just sort of, well, it comes close to slander. I'm going oh, to yeah. use a stronger term. I think we're yeah. misrepresenting another person in an area to make them look worse. Can, so, I, can I say a funny anecdote for that? Um, I don't know if this is funny. It might not be funny to complementarians. But I I used to get in heated debates about this stuff. One, when I was a complementarian to egalitarians. <laughs> and then now uh, a little bit more as an egalitarian to complementarians. Um, and one of the things as a complementarian to egalitarian, I'd always would just basically say like, well, you just don't believe in the Bible. And that's okay. Like, it's fine. You just don't believe in the Bible. And now on the other side of the aisle, <laughs> now when I look back at them, it's like, well, Oh, I get it. So complementarians, it's separate but equal. Uh, and so it triggers <laughs> a lot of emotional oh, yeah. response. And and that's not helpful on my end. That's not loving. That's not gracious. That's not viewing their best. I'm either one on the complementarian side assuming you don't believe in the Bible or on the egalitarian side assuming you hate women. Um, those are kind of the two ways we can slander them. And we never say those specific things that you hate the Bible or you hate women. But we do it in kind of, I think, more subversive ways in some of our arguments and sure. some of our conversations. Sure. Even implying that, uh, and this is quite common, that egalitarians have a defective way of interpreting Scripture, a mm-hmm. defective hermeneutic, mm-hmm. uh, which technically, uh, or, or I say practically, boils down to you're using culture or cultural background issues in Scripture to get around what the Scripture is saying. And mm-hmm. it implies motive. Yeah. And I think that's quite problematic. Yeah. Which, side note, we did that with slavery in the Bible. We did. <laughs> but everyone's okay with that. When you said separate but equal, that's yeah, exactly what exactly. came to my mind. Exactly. I, I was in Arkansas in the 1960s yeah. in a college, and it was a very difficult situation with regard to ethnicity and, and racial tensions. Uh, but I think there's some similarities between the two. But no, I think we have to try to say, here's the best argument on this side, the best mm-hmm. argument on that side. And we have to do the same thing with other gender-related issues, like yeah. the questions of same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. We have to say, let, let's not just pick those persons who disregard Scripture because they think Paul got it wrong. Mm-hmm. Let's pick the evangelical arguments that say, I think this is a better way to interpret Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other person says, no, I, I actually think this argument makes more sense to me. Now we have an honest debate, mm-hmm. and it's a good mm-hmm. debate, a healthy debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it's convenient for me because I was a complementarian for 10 years of mm-hmm. my teaching career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even two years before I started this significant change of mine, I actually was recorded in a Biola chapel uh, <laughs> arguing for a complementarian position. <laughs> Uh, which somehow has remained to this day in, uh, first of all, in cassette tape form, and now yeah, it's been digitized. Yeah. So I often just have my students listen to the old Ron Pierce uh, and compare to the new one. But <laughs> if you ever because... want to blackmail Dr. Pierce, you have a video now on YouTube that you can find to blackmail him. <laughs> well, no video, thankfully. No, oh, it's, it's just, just audio. an old cassette tape <laughs> in the 1980s. Uh, but, but yeah, it, it's actually been good for me because now I can say, no, no, no. My students often say that. Well, I think complementarians are just doing this. No, I understand why they end up there. Yeah. And I can see that line of argument in First Timothy 2, which is the critical place for church. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can see why they end up there. It's not where I end up because I think this is a better argument. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to mm-hmm. say it's the right argument and theirs is wrong. Mm-hmm. I think this is better and that's not as good. Mm-hmm. And at one time I thought that one was better. So. Yeah. So what what would you say to someone who's maybe, like in my situation, they're leading in a church um, and they realize 
this church is complementarian and I'm egalitarian, uh, or this church is egalitarian and I'm complementarian, and they're in higher up leadership positions. What should they be doing? Um, should they leave? Should they start a coup to get them to switch their position? What What do you think is the right process of going about that? Mm, that's a delicate question. Uh, I'm actually in a church situation that where my church actually transitioned from being complementary mm-hmm. to egalitarian, mm-hmm. and we're not 100% there yet. It's mm-hmm. similar to yours. Women can actually serve on our elder board and chair our elder board, but they can't be senior pastor. Got it. And, and since I don't think we need a senior pastor, then, <laughs> then it's it's practically an egalitarian church. Yeah, yeah. But they technically have a little thing still in the books about that. Um, and so, yeah, what do we do? Actually, the First Timothy 2 passage, and, and I know we're not probably able to get into it because of the length of time mm-hmm. it takes to talk yeah. about. It's a very complex passage. But at least one thing we can agree on is that it says that the women are not to teach, either teach and usurp authority or teach in a usurping way. And mm-hmm. I bring that, I think the latter is what Paul's saying. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I bring that to the church today as an egalitarian mm-hmm. in a complementarian church, technically. And I say, okay, if I disagree with the church leadership on this in particular, uh, then I, I, I have the right to speak up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm very congregational in my denominational mm-hmm. uh, affiliations mm-hmm. that way. But I don't have the right to undermine what the church is doing and teaching. Mm. Yeah, a very delicate balance, uh, and, and so I will I will go to the senior leadership and I'll say I disagree on this issue. What is the position of the church? And many times they say, well, we really don't have one. That just happened to be the majority view. Mm-hmm. In which mm-hmm. case I say, great, let's talk more. Yeah. But if they say no, we have a position. We feel strongly about it. Then I will ask, is it okay for me to have a dissenting voice mm-hmm. on that? Mm-hmm. And actually, a previous church I went to, that was the case where the dissenting voice wasn't really welcomed. It was the egalitarian voice. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up leaving the church, not not in anger, but I thought, okay, the senior pastor is also writing a book on this, mm-hmm. and this is going to cause significant division in the church. Yeah. The leadership wants to go with that position. They really don't want me openly teaching my position, so I'll, I'll fellowship in a different place where yeah. it's okay. So I came to a complementarian church that said, no, it's perfectly okay for you to disagree. This just happens to be where we are right now. Mm-hmm. And I say, hey, I can live with that. Yeah. So I think that's the way we ought to handle it. And, yeah. and this may even apply, if I dare say, a little more to women who are egalitarian, mm-hmm. who have been held back and told that they're not really hearing God's call to ministry and, and it's just their own feminist pride or something. And they finally f- come to a place of, I think, genuine freedom in Christ mm-hmm. to embrace that Oh, it's hard for them not to push back and say, yeah. finally, I have freedom. Yeah. I'm going to declare this. Yeah. Uh, and I say, no, God still calls us to mutual submission. Yeah. Uh, and so somehow we have to do this in a caring and serving way. Yeah. I think that's the key. It reminds me of a time I was meeting with a pastor, um, and I was thinking about going with this one of the, a certain church network. I'm not going to say which one, um, to, to plant a church. And I was kind of like, well— like, are you guys complementarian or egalitarian? Like, I don't think I'd want to plant if you're complementarian. Uh, no judgment. Like, I love what you guys are doing, but I just want you to know, like, I'm I'm in this this camp, and so I want to plant accordingly, just to be consistent. Um, and he's like, you know what? Like, we're we're currently like processing and dialoguing about that. We're complementarian right now. Um, and he's like, but honestly, that's just not on the forefront of our minds. We're not really thinking about it a ton. Like, we have other issues we're trying to thinking about. 
And I like, I understand that, but there's a part of it just even in this conversation where it's like, as men in leadership positions, you changing your position doesn't really matter that much. It matters who you might work alongside now, but if you're a woman, it matters a whole lot more. Yeah. Um, I think it should matter more to men, obviously. Um, but a lot of men aren't even thinking about it in leadership positions. They're not thinking critically about the text because it's not going to affect really their day-to-day lives. It might affect some of their coworkers, but it, as you as a man, it's not going to... You becoming egalitarian doesn't tell you that you can't be a pastor now <laughs> or you can't do certain things. So it doesn't really change that much for you, but for women it changes a lot. And so I just wish that more complementarian churches and the men who are pastors there would just take a harder look um, at it. Not saying they haven't, because obviously a ton have, but a lot of them I think are just like, well, it's just not affecting me, so I'm not going to think. That's why a lot of churches don't deal with race, um, a lot of white churches, because it's just like, well, it's just not really affecting us, so why do we... Like we're not going to spend a whole ton of time thinking about this. We got to think about saving people. Um, Why are we getting worried about who's in leadership or what kind of the population of our churches? And it's like, well, I get that there are maybe more pressing issues right now for your church, but this matters. Like for people who are outside of your white or male bubble, Um, and I think that's that's kind of where I've been in the camp of. I think with similar to you, Doctor Pierce, where it's like, okay, I'm an egalitarian. This is what the church I'm going to. I'm an egalitarian. You guys are complementarian. I will submit to your doctrine. I'm not going to start a coup against you, but I just, am I okay to work here? And they're like, yeah, as long as you know, like no one's going to usurp the authority of the church, not in a domineering way, but just in like loving respect and submission. And then we're fine with that. And I'm like, oh, okay, then sweet. Like I can, I can work with that. Cause I like the rest of what you guys do. I can kind of work with this. Um, but this is why I really believe in the house church. Cause mm. if you're in a house church and you're meeting around a dinner and you have people that are sharing from the text, or you're sharing about your lives, no one is wondering who's in charge. You're wondering who brought the pasta or who brought the garlic bread uh, or who brought the soda or wine. Um, you're not worried about is John in charge or is Karen in charge? Is, can Jenny chime in here on this passage? Is she teaching then or is she not teaching? I think in a house, you're probably not asking a lot of these questions and maybe I'm naive about that, but I think that's if the church went to a house church in America, I wonder if this conversation would just completely disappear. Um, not not like just be gone, because obviously, theologically, we argue about things that have no bearing on the church, really, like end times debates. Um, they have a lot of bearings, but for the most part, in your day-to-day lives, it's not really affecting you. And so I wonder if like the church was more in a house church type setting, if these conversations would even be that big of a deal, and if they would be that divisive or that heated or that emotional um, I don't know. I want to. I want to look into that. Oh, I think you're you're right on target there. And you had mentioned earlier uh, that from Constantine up yeah. until the yeah. Reformation, we had a a very male dominant church. We also had a hierarchical church. Well, that's when church and state merged. That's right. Yeah. And so suddenly hierarchy became a very important issue. And then to a certain degree, our senior pastor model, I think, is a leftover from the Roman mm-hmm. church where mm-hmm. we had a pope and we had yeah. bishops. We're not okay with the Pope being over all the churches, but we're okay with a senior pastor being over 15 campus <laughs> churches. Exactly. Even though it's the same it's the same function um, in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, if we get to a more of a mutually shared leadership, I don't think we have as much trouble sharing it across gender yeah. norms. Yeah. So I guess in all this, to sum up both conversations, we'll probably end with two questions here. Maybe first, what is your hope for people um, in terms of, maybe we can, we can address two people. What is your hope for people who are maybe wrestling with they're not fitting in the gender norms? Um, they're not fitting the typical masculine, feminine norms, mm-hmm. whether that's a transgender thing or just a masculine, feminine thing. Um, and then what would be your hope for someone wrestling with kind of the church roles and gender roles? Um, so maybe one, what would, what would the hope to speak to someone who's wrestling with their own 
gender um, and femininity, masculinity. And then part two of that is what would be your hope to someone who's wrestling with kind of the gender roles debate in the in the church and the family? Yeah, uh, and uh, they're they're really very different things. Uh, yeah. Uh, especially let's just converse to the their own sense of gender identity and sexual identity and wrestling with transgender issues. Well, I, I mentioned before regarding intersex persons, it has to be love. It has to be grace to this person. Uh, and, and too often we use the name grace or the title of the term grace lightheartedly. Uh, if we just reflect on the grace of God in our lives, how can we graciously love and accept and embrace a person? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that sense, with the person really wrestling with all of this, I think the primary thing is finding our identity in Christ and realizing that our spiritual identity is so much more important than sexual identity, gender identity, our uh, vocational identities, all of the other identities we have, our intellectual ability identities, so much more important. And if we can embrace that, it brings us to a level playing ground uh, in Christ where my gender preferences or gender tendencies aren't really as critical in my life. Yeah. They can be put into a, a proper place to be discussed and considered and, and discerned. Uh, with regard to the complementary and egalitarian debate, oh, what do we do when, when the church is kind of hopelessly lost in this? Mm-hmm. Kind of gridlocked. Gridlocked, yeah. Uh, it, what really got me thinking about it and what I think in the end changed my mind on the uh, gender leadership question was understanding what the church really is. Hmm. Uh, it was an old book by Howard Snyder called The Problem of Wineskins back in the 1970s, where he, he emphasized the simple truth that the church is family. Hmm. We are the people, the church. The yeah. church is not organizational structure. Uh, and I think we've made a huge mistake with our modern distinctions of church and parachurch. Hmm. So and many complementarians find they're out here. Mm-hmm. where women cannot teach or, or lead in the church, but they can do the very same thing in parachurch, mm-hmm. Christian organizations. Mm-hmm. And, and Which I, a parachurch is like a Samaritan's Purse, uh, yeah, Compassion yeah. International, for yeah. those of you maybe Christian not Christian colleges, yeah. missionary organizations, everything else that is distinctively Christian mm-hmm. in its organizational structure, but it is not the weekend meeting with the stained glass steepled yeah. <laughs> kind of thing, or even house churches. Yeah. They yeah. sort of fellowship gathering. Uh, so because my career has been in Christian education, we often just say, well, this is we are not a church. Mm-hmm. And I understand that in the modern cultural sense of church, mm-hmm. parachurch. But in a biblical sense, I don't think it exists. Mm-hmm. So I think if we can if we can get over that, then we look for a much greater consistency. And this mm-hmm. is what forced me to change my mind. Mm-hmm. Can I be consistent with what the Bible says about gender roles, which I embraced then, uh, in a, a Christian university, in missionary organizations. And I, I thought, man, that would radically change the whole way the people of God function today, yeah. not just the way this little group on the weekend functions. Yeah. Uh, and and so, so, no, I think we need to be consistent all the way across that. And in that context, I think an egalitarian interpretation of Scripture then ends up being the better reading of Scripture yeah. for understanding how it applies to the people of God in general yeah. No matter what our formal structure may be, or or whether we don't even have a formal structure, we're house church people. Yeah, that's a helpful note because if you think of the missionary population right now for the Christian church, 
if we didn't allow these women in some of these places to exercise authority like an elder, because a lot of these women who are missionaries are functioning like pastors or functioning like they're the head of the church. If we said, hey, since it's a parachurch should be treated in the same way as a church, we have to call back all these women from leading um, and being missionaries. And we, I mean, you'd probably take away half, if not maybe more. Probably more of, than half, yeah. Of the missionary percentage right now in the world, from America at least. Um, and even if, not to get into more of the egalitarian, but if you go into the rest of the world and talk about this commentary egalitarian, this is a very American issue. Um, it's not as much of an issue in other places like it is here. Um, and you can take that either way you want it. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's helpful. So I guess maybe then what is your hope for the church? You've already hit on this a little bit. But what is your hope maybe specifically for the church um, and walking alongside people who are maybe dealing with some of these gender issues? Um, let's start again with like the church walking along someone right. who's struggling with gender identity or struggling with gender stereotypes or masculinity and femininity, and then maybe what the church can be in terms of this conversation about gender roles. Yeah, with the, with the gender issue uh, specifically, gender identity and sexual identity, uh, my hope, my hope is, and I, I'm starting to see it realized, is that we will take a much more careful, uh, not just a more careful look at Scripture, setting aside our old stereotypes, but I think we are also at the same time being open to a broader discussion. We're not silencing the voices. Mm-hmm. So I see the church beginning to listen. Yeah. A wonderful new book that came out by Mark Yarhouse called "Listening to Sexual Minorities." Hmm. And I think that that is the key, I think, if we really listen to people on both sides rather than simplistically dismissing them. And they're wrong, I'm right, I don't want to listen to them anymore. So if we can just talk to each other more, and I think we're doing that. And I think the same thing applies in the area of uh, the complementarian, egalitarian movement movements, is that complementarian is, to begin with, a movement that is a hybrid in, in between. They're already yeah. nuancing what used to be the traditional view of yeah. at least 1,500 years of church history or 1,000 yeah. years. Uh, and so we're getting to a point where we're listening more carefully. And hopefully the, the literature that will come out that's feeding the church, including popular books, more accessible mm-hmm. books, uh, will have that more nuanced view yeah. instead of the sort of radical, almost Elijah prophetic tone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It can be more of a view of uh, come, let us sit together and reason together. Yeah. Or even just the way Jesus talked with persons who were marginalized persons in, in his culture and time when he sat with them and he had dinner with them and he ate with them and he, he, he let this, this adulterous woman touch him mm-hmm. and he would touch persons that were uh, outcasts in society. There, there's relationship has become more important, I think, mm-hmm. should become more important, and for many has, uh, than just ideology. Yeah. Uh, I have some dear friends who talked about that just recently in a lecture they gave, a seminar they gave, where they said, with regard to the gay versus straight debate, um, that they have chosen the side of relationships hmm. and are starting there, and to not let relationship break over these kind of ideological disagreements. Yeah. And I know there are times when it must come to that, yeah. but I think they're far less frequent than, than we allow. Yeah. I think if you look at the way of Jesus and how he interacts with people and what you were mentioning with the adulterous woman or the lepers or these people who are outcasts, Jesus got so relationally involved with them that people started to identify him with them. Um, yeah. or he, they called him a glutton. They called him a drunkard. Um, and when he, the girl was touching his feet, it was, they were viewing him as like accepting a prostitute's advances. 
And so what would it look like for the church to be so, and I can even use the word dangerously relationally mm-hmm. involved, mm-hmm. that it looks almost like we're you know, endorsing said behavior, but it's just because we're loving that radically and being in relationship to that radically. That's going to look different. There's not a black and white way to do that. It's going to be really gray, and there's going to be times where it's not clear. But I think I'd rather have a church that looks more like that than a church that looks more like what we as evangelicals ought to view the Catholic church as this high society, hierarchical kind of, we're doing it the right way. Everyone else is doing it wrong. We're pushing people out. I mean, obviously everyone doesn't view the Catholic church that way. And that's not a true view of the Catholic church. Right. Um, But it's like, what if we looked more like Jesus, which crazy thought for the church, but what if the church looked more like Jesus and how it relationally pursued people almost to the point of identification with them? Um, Because Jesus never said, I'm a glutton and a drunkard. Obviously he wasn't. But he got so close that he was almost identified with them because of how much he was in relationship with them. It's like, what would the church look like if we were known for loving people in that way compared to known for which kind of people we hate and which kind of people we don't allow in our churches? Yeah, I I, I love your language there. This radical, radically relational model, Mm -hmm. radically relational. And I think the the key there is it takes a lot of risk. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and knowing, again, knowing who you are in Christ and feeling safe enough to be vulnerable to take that risk. Mm-hmm. And that's at a very personal level, not mm-hmm. a, a corporate level. Um, but we're, we, if we're going to get into this, we're all going to get, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a good analogy, but we're all going to get our hands dirty. It's going to mm-hmm. get messy mm-hmm. uh, if we really want to get into it. If we want to stay aloof and aside like the Pharisees did in Jesus' day, then no, they can say all clean and pure. Mm-hmm. But Jesus gets out there and gets messy mm-hmm. in the everyday common part of life. And clearly we're not saying messy in terms of sin or no, in terms of no. unholiness, because yeah. um, we'd all agree Jesus didn't do those things. But he does get messy. Uh, he does. Yeah. And, and he has to risk people saying, you're a glutton. You're, mm-hmm. you're a, a drunkard. A drunkard. Friend of uh, sinners and tax collectors. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so we need to be able. It's a part of I think what Paul talks about in, in Philippians as experiencing the fellowship of his sufferings. Mm-hmm. It's not just the persecution from a uh, ungodly world to godly people, but sometimes the church persecutes its own mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. sense to say, "No, I think you're getting too close to that person." Yeah. So I often hear the question, "Can you worship with a person who disagrees <laughs> with you?" And it usually comes with regard yeah. to. The, the more controversial issue of same-sex marriage or something like that, mm-hmm. affirming views. But I'm thinking to myself, why, why couldn't I mm-hmm. worship with them? Do I want to affirm them as a teacher yeah, in a view that, a that the majority of our church disagrees with? No, I can't do that. But if I can't sit together in Christian fellowship with a person, then that gives me great concern, great mm-hmm. pause. Yeah. And I think that's a result of the bigger church, institutionalized merging of church and state. We've, it has to be more systematized. It has to be a little bit more clean cut. It has to be more functional and, and moving and fast paced and efficient. And when you get messy, it's not efficient. Um, when we get relational, it's not systematized. Um, all of the structures and stuff we build up sometimes have to go by the wayside um, in order to do this. And a lot of churches aren't willing to do it, understandably, because they have this good machine going. Um, but it, it, there's something about it where I'm like, this doesn't, 
fully feel like the way of Jesus. It feels pretty close, um, but I'd like to tweak maybe a few things to make us a little bit more like Jesus. Absolutely. Well, sweet. This has been awesome, Dr. Pierce, um, and I hope people are really blessed by both of these conversations. Um, so, yeah, thank you for coming on. Appreciate well, it. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been a pleasure doing this with you. We hope that Dr. Pierce's words today encouraged you in your gender identity, reframed how you even view gender and manhood and womanhood, and ultimately made you feel hope for your gender. Also, if you ever have any questions or feedback or topics that you want us to discuss and you want to get a hold of us, we have an email listed in the podcast notes that you can email um, and send us your thoughts. So please go on and do that, um, and we'll hopefully incorporate that into some of the podcasts in the future. And as always, may the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.